It's a great honor for me to round off an end of the last series, in the last sermon in the Amos series. And let's pray right now and to ask for God's guidance and God's leading in our time here. Oh, gracious God, would you direct our hearts and our minds into your word, and would your Holy Spirit be here, leading us and guiding us, rebuking us, convicting us, comforting us, Lord, so that we may present a life that is righteous and that is holy before you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Now, if the junior high bike, you know, they used like to go on a bike trip every October, and so they went on a bike trip this October too, and so they always go to El Sparta. And one of the neat things about going on that bike trip is that there are these tunnels. And so once you enter these tunnels, it's kind of creepy, kind of dark, it's damp, you know that, you don't know whether you're going to bump into somebody. But then as you go further, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. In a similar way, there is light at the end of the tunnel in the book of Amos. So far, the first eight chapters have been heavy, heavy on judgment. Now, there's judgment in this chapter we're going to be taking a look at in chapter 9. But in the midst of judgment, there is hope. There is hope for restoration, and there's hope for life. And so that's what we're going to be taking a look at today in chapter 9. Now, the way that I'm going to do this sermon here is that first I'm going to explain the text, the prophecy, the vision, the prophecy. I'll then draw the big idea, and then I'll try to draw some implications and applications for us. So first we'll take a look at the prophecy. Now, in the prophecy itself, the chapter of Amos 9 can be divided into three sections here. The first six verses tells us that God will certainly judge. And then verses 7 to 10 tells us that there's a hope for a remnant. And the last five verses tells us that there's hope for a restoration. Now, taking a look in the first section here where it says that God will certainly judge. Now, this section here continues the judgment motif that we have seen in the previous chapters. In the division, we see that God's judgment is sure, it is certain, and it cannot be avoided. So it says here, reading in verse 1 here, I saw the Lord standing by the altar. That is the altar battle here. And he said, strike the tops of the pillars so that the thresholds shake. Bring them down on the heads of all the people. Those who are left, I will kill with the sword. The main idea here. Not one will get away. None will escape here. Ultimately, the destruction of Israel in the northern kingdom begins with the destruction of the temple at Bethel because the temple there was rooted in a sense of idolatry that was pushing forward all the religious systems that the King Jeroboam was trying to advocate here. But God commands the destruction of the temple. And he says it strike the tops of the pillars so that the thresholds that means the supports for the doors would also crumble. There is top-to-bottom destruction. If you're in the temple, you'll be killed. But if you go out of the temple itself, the sword will come after you. Ultimately, there is no escape from the coming destruction. Now, in the next three verses, it gives us further examples of there to be no possibility for escape. There's no possibility for escape in the supernatural realm. He says that, Do you think you can dig down to the depths itself? That is to show the, the place of the dead there. If you even go down there, from there, my hand will take you. Do you think that if you can climb up to the heavens above, from there I will bring you down? Ultimately, these are all hyperbolic language. And God is saying that there is no escape, even in the heaven or even in Sheol. There's no escape in the supernatural realm. There's also no escape in the geographical realm. You can go and hide yourself on the top of Mount Carmel itself, but there I will hunt you down and seize you. 
You can try to escape from my eyes in the bottoms of the sea, but from there I will command the serpent to bite you. So there is no escape even in the geographical realm. At the same time, there is no escape in the military realm. The destruction is going to come, the invading nations will come and attack, and you will be killed in the invasion. But for those of you who are lucky enough to be going sent off into exile, don't think that you are lucky. For even though you are driven into exile, the God says that I will command the sword to slay you. God's eye is on Israel, but it is not an eye of love. On the other hand, God says that my eye is on you for harm, for evil, and not for good. Ultimately here, God will watch over Israel. He'll keep his eye on them, but ultimately it is for evil and not for good. So these four verses tell us that there is no escape from God's judgment. But why is there no escape? There is no escape ultimately because God is the sovereign creator God. God is a sovereign creator God. And he tells us in these three verses here, from verses 5 and 6, he gives us in these two verses here, he gives us three examples why God is a sovereign creator God. Firstly, God is sovereign over the land, over the earth. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, he touches the earth and it melts, it dissolves, it crumbles. All who live in it mourn. The whole land rises like the Nile, then sinks like the river of Egypt. Now the Nile, you know, it has an annual flooding. Every, in the summer itself, when the heavy rainfall comes, it overflows its banks, and then it recedes again. And God is saying that he will touch the earth, and there will be earthquakes that rise up like the Nile and that sinks. I remember that uh, when Anna was a little bit little, I used to give her stacking cups. So she would put all these stacking cups, and what do babies like to do? They just like to knock it down, all right? And here God is saying the same thing. He will just touch the earth, and it will crumble, and it will dissolve, and it will melt. So God is sovereign over the land, but God is also sovereign over the heavens and earth. His palace, he builds his lofty palace in the heavens and sets his foundation on the earth. But not only is God sovereign over heaven and earth, he's also sovereign over the seas. And so he calls for the waters of the seas and pours them out over the face of the land. And the Lord is his name. Karen likes to go gardening, and she always has this water pot. And she takes the water pot and then likes to pour it over the plants. And in the same way, God collects the seas into his water pot and that he pours it out over the seas. God is sovereign over the seas. And because God is sovereign, a sovereign creator over the cosmos itself, we as finite creatures will never be able to escape his grasp. And so Amos is predicting a judgment to come upon the northern kingdom, upon Israel. And this judgment was ultimately fulfilled in 722 B.C., where Assyria came and decimated, totally decimated the whole nation itself. But nonetheless, the New Testament authors also tell us that there is a day of judgment to come. There is a day of the Lord, and there will be another great judgment to come when Christ returns again. And ultimately, you cannot escape from this day of reckoning itself. You cannot escape from this day of reckoning. Now, in the Hurricane Irma, it was deadly. It was tragic. But if that is deadly, if that is tragic, the destruction of the day of the Lord will be great. So, if there is no escape for many locals from the incoming hurricane, there is also no outrunning the day of the Lord. It will surely and it will certainly come. But in the midst of this dire statement of judgment, there is hope. There is hope for a remnant. And so here, God's judgment is sure. It is certain. But the hope of God's judgment ultimately exists because God's judgment is not indiscriminate. 
he will only judge the unrepentant sinners, and ultimately there is hope for remnant. The reason for God's judgment ultimately lies because they were sinners. You can see that in verse 8. Surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth. All the sinners among my people will die by the sword. From the past chapters of Amos, we have read that the sins of Israel, and that there were many, and they included economic oppression on the poor, it included greed, materialism, it included their self-sufficient pride in their wealth, included religious hypocrisy and idolatry here. And, but so they were sinners, but not only were they sinners, they were also complacent. They were saying at last party in verse 10, disaster will never overtake us, will never meet us. Why were they complacent? Why did they not think that God would judge them? Ultimately, they were relying on their special status of God's people in light of the Exodus. They thought that they were God's special people in light of the Exodus. And because of the Exodus and because they were God's special people, God would never discipline them. But God, God says that your special status does not mean that you can live your life the way that you want to. Ultimately, you cannot just count on a past historical fact in the past without any thought about the implications from the present. God says, are you not Israelites the same to me as the Cushites? Did I not bring Israel out from Egypt, the Philistines from Tephthah and the Arameans from Kir? Amos is saying, you Israelites think that you have the Exodus, but God says that he also has the Exodus for the Cushites, for the Philistines, and for the Arameans. So Amos is telling the people of Israel that you cannot rely on a past historical fact here. Now, Amos does not deny Israel's special position. He does not say you do not no longer possess the special relationship you once enjoyed. Rather, he says that you cannot rely on that special privilege and have total disregard for what God commands you to do. Ultimately, you cannot rely on the fact that because you have the exodus and do not demonstrate behavior that is in keeping with being the people of God. So ultimately here, there is judgment on this complacent people, but there is hope. There is hope for a remnant. And God's judgment is not indiscriminate. For God will say, yet I will not totally destroy the descendants of Jacob. For I will give the command and I will shake the people of Israel among all the nations as grain is shaken in a sieve, and not a pebble will reach to the ground. So instead of totally destroying all of Israel, God will sift the people as a farmer sifts the grain, so that the pebble is separated from the grain, and the pebble will then be removed. The pebbles are those who are sinners with an unrepentant heart, who says and claims that God will never judge them. The grain are those who repent and turn towards the Lord. So that it's ultimately hope for remnant. But not only is there hope for remnant, there's hope for restoration for the entire kingdom itself. And so ultimately, the northern kingdom will be totally destroyed, yes. But like the other prophets, Amos foresees hope for a restored kingdom. He says here that in that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and will rebuild it as it used to be. David's fallen shelter ultimately referred to David's fallen kingdom. It should be read that I will restore David's fallen house, and the house there refers to his kingdom. But the house is no longer a house. Instead, it is just a shack. And it is fallen. And just as what we have here in terms of this shelter here, it is fallen. But it is fallen because the kingdom of Israel has been split between the north and the south kingdom. 
and the territory that David once occupied has now been shrunk down. But yet, God will say, I will restore. I will restore David's fallen kingdom just as it was had its glory in the past. And here he will restore it. But not only that, the territory of the David's kingdom will increase so much that it will even possess the remnant of Edom. Edom is mentioned because it was the most dire, heartstrong enemy of Israel that was most set against the people of Israel. And God is saying that even at that time, there will be restoration of David's kingdom so that all the hostile nations that were against the kingdom of Israel, they will be brought into the people of God. They will be brought into David's kingdom and they will enjoy the blessings of the kingdom of David. And so there is hope for restoration, hope for a restored kingdom. But not only is the kingdom restored, ultimately creation is restored too. And so we read, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. Do you remember in the curse, in the fall of Genesis 3, God cursed the ground so that it was only with difficulty that it will produce fruit. Thorns and thistles will grow up. But ultimately, there is going to be a restoration of the curse of creation itself such that there will be a bountiful harvest. And so when Amos talks about it here, the harvest will be so bountiful that they are still trying to gather in the harvest when the people are trying to plow it for the next year. This present harvest is so great that it will bump up against the, reap, the plow people who are going to plow in for the next harvest. You are still going to be treading the grapes while they want to plant the, next, the seed for the next year. The harvest will be so bountiful that wine will then flow from the hills, from the grapes from which it is planted. There is a restoration of creation. But not only is there a restored creation, ultimately here you have a restored covenant here. In Deuteronomy 28, there were the blessings and the curses. And part of the curses of the covenant itself is that they would be sent off into exile. Their cities will be taken over by others. They will plant, but they will never enjoy what they have planted. But in this restoration itself, Amos is saying that the covenantal curses will be reversed. It will be totally reversed. And so God says, I will bring my people Israel back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. And so that the covenantal curses of Deuteronomy are reverse. Isn't that great? But wait, that's more. Ultimately, Amos tells us that this restoration is going to be permanent. He reads it in verse 15 here. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. How is that possible? How can that be? Because the Deuteronomic covenant was always conditional. It was always dependent upon their obedience to the covenantal commands. Unless, unless Amos is alluding to the new covenant that the other prophets talked about, where God himself will do the work, where God will place his Holy Spirit in the people, where God will enact a new covenant with the people of Israel. He will put their laws in their minds and write it on their hearts. He will be their God and they will be my people. This restoration is permanent. It's possible because God is the one who is to do it. God is the one who will bring about and God is the one who will give the Holy Spirit so that his people are able to do his commands. Friends, the restoration that Amos talks about, it has begun. 
it has begun. Ultimately here, the restoration has begun. And the restoration of even of Israel has begun. Remember that we have been taking a look at a book of Acts before we did Amos. And in Acts 1, you know, the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? What does Jesus say? It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Jesus' answer does not mean that the restoration of Israel will not come. In Jesus' answer, he says two things. The first thing, the exact chronological sequence of the restoration, none of your business. Right? None of your business. But secondly, the restoration of kingdom of the Israel, you all will have a part to play in it. And you all will play a part in it when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and when you proclaim God's word in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. And the book of Acts unfolds this out. And so that ultimately in chapters 2 to 7, when you have the proclamation of the word in Jerusalem, you have the restoration of Jerusalem happening. When you have the proclamation of the word in Judea and Samaria, you have the restoration of the northern and the southern kingdom happening. Because Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom. And when you have the word going out into the nations itself in Acts 13 all the way to the end of chapter 28 here, you have the restoration of the nations. So much so that in Acts 15, James, the brother of the Lord, quotes Amos 9 to prove the fact that the restoration of the nations has begun with the inclusion of Gentiles. In other parts, or the scripture itself. Ultimately, we see God's restoration happening in creation and God's ha- uh, restoration happening in his covenant. But there are two reminders here, ultimately. Israel, the restoration of Israel, is not national or ethnic Israel, but the entire people of God comprising Jews and Gentiles. The second reminder, ultimately, is that the restoration has begun with the death and resurrection of Jesus, but it will not be completed until Jesus returns again. In other parts of the New Testament, it talks about the restoration of creation itself. It talks about restoration of the new covenant. But ultimately, friends, the restoration that Amos prophesies has already begun. What then is ultimately the takeaway from this chapter. What then? It's a big idea here. Ultimately here, our passage tells us of a coming judgment. It tells us of coming judgment, but it also tells us that there is hope within this judgment. There is judgment, but there is hope. What then is your response? What is our response? Amos 9 doesn't tell us the answer, but ultimately the answer can be found in Amos 5. It is seen in terms where God says, Seek me and live. Seek the Lord and live. It is also seen in seek good, not evil, that you may live. And this then brings us with the main idea here that we are to seek God and his righteousness that we may share in his restoration. Seek God and his righteousness, that you may share in his restoration. But what does seek God mean? It is to call on him for mercy and forgiveness, and to trust that he is able to cleanse you from your sin. It means to make him your number one priority, not your work, not your finances, and not your studies. It means not to boast in your riches, but to boast in the Lord. It means not to take pride in your self-sufficiency, but to rely on the Lord. Ultimately, it means to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But how about seeking God's righteousness? In the context of Amos, seeking God's righteousness is to do good, 
not evil. It means not to oppress your neighbor, not to oppress the poor and the downcast. It means not to take advantage of others. It means not to view others only as a means of economic advancement. Rather, it is to show compassion to the poor and the downcast, and to see others as created in the image of God. It is to love your neighbor as yourself, and so that in chapter in the book of Amos here, we have the two greatest commandments. That even Jesus talks about: love God, and to love man. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. What then is the implications for us here? What are the implications here? Seek the Lord and His righteousness, that you may share in His restoration. For those of you who do not know Jesus, who have not accepted Him as your Savior, as your Lord, seek Him that you may share in the restoration itself. Amos presents us with two paths, or rather two sides here: one in terms of total destruction, but yet one in terms of restoration itself. And ultimately, here, what will you choose? God is certainly going to judge the world, but what should you do? Just as those who could not escape and outrun Hurricane Irma, they began to find a shelter location that will protect them from the oncoming destruction. In the same way, seek the shelter that is to be found in Jesus, so that the destruction that should have come upon you on the day of the Lord. Ultimately, does not fall on you, but falls on Jesus. If you do not seek the shelter that is provided, the light at the end of the tunnel is not a light of hope, but rather it is light of an incoming train. If you are Jewish, and have not acknowledged Jesus as your Davidic Messiah and King, you are missing out. You are missing out on the restoration of Israel that has already begun. By not acknowledging Jesus as the promised seed of David, the promised seed of Abraham, you are missing out on the restoration that not only encompasses Israel, but also the restoration of the entire cosmos itself. And therefore, seek the Lord, seek God, and seek His righteousness. Now, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, then seek His righteousness so that you may share in His restoration. Just as there was nothing special or redemptive about the Exodus for Israel, unless they demonstrated behavior that was consonant, that was in keeping with the people of God, so also there is nothing redemptive about professing. Faith in Jesus, unless it is demonstrated by a life that is obedient to the commands of God. Let me explain this a little bit further.、Uh, I was leading a life group on Friday, and one member asked an important question here: How do we understand all this judgment language in Amos? What's the relevance of this judgment language for us believers? I thought that we were. Saved by faith in Jesus, so why all this judgment language? Why? Ultimately, yes, it's absolutely true that we are saved by faith in Jesus, but it is of a peculiar kind of faith. It is a faith that is demonstrated by obedience to God. In the book of James itself, that was read. James talks about two kinds of faith. It talks about a sterile faith, a faith that is dead, but it also talks about a genuine faith. A faith that is dead is a faith that agrees with the gospel, but ultimately it does not result in a changed life, and there's no viable evidence of the fruits of the spirit in that person. There's no repentance. 
There's no interest in things that are dear to God. This is like, you can imagine someone saying this, you know. Yeah, I walked down the aisle and accepted Jesus as my Savior many years ago. Yep, I was baptized. And here's my baptismal certificate to show as my insurance policy. And this guarantees me a place in heaven. But, you know, that's in the past. Now, I don't read the Bible anymore. I don't pray anymore. I don't go to church, you know. And I just live the life that I want to live without regard of God. If that is the case, that kind of faith will not save at all. That faith is dead, useless. But James talks about another kind of faith, a genuine faith. On the other hand, you could have someone who also had the same kind of childhood experience, who agrees with the gospel, who also walked down the aisle and was baptized here. But ultimately here, we have someone who earnestly desires to please God, who wants to live his life according to God's word, who repents of sin and who seeks to live a righteous life. This, this kind of faith, this genuine biblical faith, this is the kind of faith that will save because this is a faith that cannot exist apart from obedience to God. So you have this sterile faith and a genuine faith so that if you are a follower of Jesus, seek God and his righteousness so that you may share in his restoration. If you are a follower of Jesus, seek the righteousness and share in his restoration by helping to bring the kingdom of God on earth. Far too often, when we become Christians, our entire focus is getting into heaven. We put on our ascension robes and we tell God, God, I'm ready. Beam me up. Beam me up here. But that's only one part of the gospel. Only one part of the gospel. Yes, it is about being reconciled to God and going to heaven. But the gospel is also about bringing heaven down on earth. It is also about bringing heaven down on earth. It is about bringing God's kingdom, God's kingdom on earth and establishing his reign on influence on the earth. Do we not pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? And what is God's will as we have seen in Amos? What is God's will as we have seen in Amos? Didn't Amos say, let justice flow. Let justice flow on like a river. And ultimately here, may his righteousness be like a never-ending stream. Let justice flow on like a river. And his righteousness like a never-ending stream. In a place as parched as Jerusalem and Judea, where it's a desert. Amos is praying that Justice and righteousness will be as life-giving, as sustaining, as rivers, and as a never-ending spring. And that is God's prayer for us. Ultimately, God tells us to seek Him, to seek His righteousness, so that we may share in His restoration. Let me pray for us. Almighty God, we thank you that we are able to have a shelter in the coming hurricane and that this shelter is to be found in the person of Jesus. And so we cling to him for protection, but we also heed his words. And his words are reminded for us to love God and to love man, to love God with all our hearts, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. May this be so in our lives. Amen. Let's stand and sing. Getting a lawyer. A lawyer who's going to fight on your behalf, and not only fight on your behalf, he's going to pay all the debt that you owe. Do you understand? So there's one thing we learn about Abraham here is that often prayer is 
inside of a court, inside of court language. In fact, there have been times, particularly recently, that my dad and I have prayed together and we have said, Lord, we want you to take this case to the top of your docket. That's the way we've actually prayed. And if you find someone who's been, who's been in prayer a long time, someone who's really an expert in prayer, they often will pray, Lord, will you move this to the top of the list kind of prayers. We think that this is important and we would like you to see this case beforehand. Well, this is important. This needs to be pushed forward. Something's going to happen. This is time sensitive. That's what intercession is. Intercession isn't just spending a long time in prayer. Some people think that when you're a prayer intercessor, it means that you just talk a lot. Or that you just pray for hours and hours. No, what you're doing is you're going back to the Lord and back to the Lord and back to the Lord as if you're the lawyer on behalf of whoever you're praying for. And you're making a case to the Lord for why you think this case should not only be moved to the top of the docket, but that He should judge righteously, but also give grace as a judger. As the judge. You understand? So here He's saying, the Lord is saying to him, look, I've heard this outcry. There's a case coming before my courtroom. And the case is Sodom and Gomorrah. What do you think about that, Abraham? Now, Abraham is being tested all the time, but remember, he's on a journey of learning how to have a relationship with the Lord. And now God is opening to him a little bit more of what goes behind the scenes. I remember the first time we went to Disney World as, as a family, my brother fell, hit his head on, right before we went on Pirates of the Caribbean. And they brought him, we went to go back in the back of the Pirates of the Caribbean to get to where the um, first aid was, and I saw all the backs of the robots. And I was like, wow, this is really disappointing now that I get to see everything that's actually happening. But here we have Abraham being brought in because he's a friend of God, and God's bringing him in to the, the inner workings of what's going on. He could just say, okay, see you later, Abraham. And then all of a sudden, Abraham's watching, has his feet up one day, you know, and he's, and he's eating some kind of fondue or something. He seems to like the milk and the meat together. He puts the milk and the meat, he's dipping his meat in the, in the cheese, and he just sees an explosion over the horizon. No, that's not what happened. God says, hey, why don't I tell you about what's going to happen? We're going to go down to Sodom. Automatic bad. Now, literally, in this case, they were going down the hill. Right? They're going down the hill towards Sodom. But also, he's saying, something bad's going to happen. Because there's a case against them, and it's pretty bad. Um, they, this case sounds like a terrible case. So the men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before Adonai. So there's two of them leave. We know they're not Adonai. So don't get confused. Sometimes people think there's three. That means it's a trinity. In this case, it's two angels and, a, and, and Adonai. Adonai stays with him. So the angels start going, and Adonai stays. Then Abraham, verse 23, Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Now, I don't know about you, but one of, my, one of the things that makes me laugh the most is when I bring my kids in on the plan, and then they give me advice on the plan. Have you ever done that? Like you say, oh, we're going to go, we're going to go someplace great. Oh, really? I think we should go to McDonald's. And then, no, no, I would like to go to Mod Pizza. Is Mod Pizza open? And this just happened on Sunday, so I know. You know, and they start giving me all these things, and I'm going, you have no idea what I have planned for you. And I'm only letting you in on it because I'm trying to get you excited. But I know where we're going. I know where we're headed. And I know that you're going to like it when you get there. In fact, you're going to have so much fun. So I said to them, no, no, we're going to Buffalo Wild Wings. They said, oh, we don't want to go there because they've never been there. And I said, but there are a bunch of TVs, and they have video games you can play, and a bunch of chicken you can eat. And Rachel goes, ooh, chicken. I do like chicken. <laughs> right? Do you think it would, it would have changed our plan any if they had... Do you see what I mean? Like, there's a sense that, as the dad, I'm saying, look, I'm bringing you in on the plan. I'm going to bring you someplace you've never been before. I'm going to let you try something you've never tasted before. We're going to expand your palate. Because all you're used to is chicken nuggets, and I'm going to give you some spicy wings. And then you get to feel the full effects of what that does to your body. Could be a blessing and a curse, I don't know. But here it's like, look, we're going to do this. So Abraham turns around immediately and says, but God, are you going to... And the Hebrew here is really, is really cool because it actually says scrape away. Because he's expecting them to judge. And he says, are you really going to scrape away all? It's like, you know like when you go on top of your counter and you put your hand out or you take... Or even if you're at a really nice restaurant, which is, I've always thought was cool and also annoying all at the same time because it makes that noise where they scrape the table. Have you ever had anybody do that? Where they take all the crumbs with a scraper off the table. It's real, it's, it's like hoity-toity, but it also is kind of like scrapes. It's kind of annoying. They, they do it at Ruth Chris. You should go. It's fun. It, just save up some money and enjoy yourself. But he's saying here, are you going to scrape it? Are you literally going to scrape the righteous? with? Are you just going to scoop the whole thing up? Are you going to scoop everybody together? 
Because there's got to be somebody righteous in this place. Now notice, he doesn't say to him, no, oh Lord, you don't, you know, you've misheard. Um, Sodom and Gomorrah are not as bad as you think. They just get confused sometimes. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, hey, you know, I, the rumors of them are untrue. He says, well, hold on. Is there anybody there who's good? How about we have this conversation? Is anybody good? Now remember, Sodom and Gomorrah are not friends with Abraham. So why is he praying for a city that is not necessarily good? You would think, like, like Jonah, he would just go up on top of the mountain, turn his back, and wait for the place to explode. Right, but he has relatives there, and he seems to be concerned with the city. And it's important because often, when we start thinking about the sins of our cities, when we start thinking about the sins of this world, we get angry, and it's not the right emotion. Anger is not the right emotion that people sin because we're not the judge. We should be brokenhearted for the fact that they don't know the difference between their right and their left. That they don't know what they're doing. They don't know where they're going. They, they obviously are seeking something, but they're getting it in the wrong way. Or they've been sucked into the way that the city works and they've become inhospitable and they've removed their humanity or they've been treated in such a way that... I mean, I, I, it's always sad to me when you know at some point your kids are going to be hurt and you think, I don't want them to ever get hurt, but I know at some point they will and I just hope they don't get hurt too bad. You know that when somebody's going to the city that that is going to happen. I mean, I used to work 40 minutes at a Christian school north of the city. So every time we went to the city, we would go, I I just hope you don't get hurt. I one time had a student who wanted to be a, a fashion model and also in ministry. And I said to her parents, I think that's impossible. I think it's impossible because to succeed in that business means you have to give something up. It's just the way it works. It's like what we're finding out about Hollywood. Turns out that you got to give something up to get something. And we glorify them and we say how great they are because it's amazing to me how much people glorify famous people and how much they love them even though they're acting. <laughs> you love the, the, the person they played. I mean, I feel like I love Harrison Ford because he was Indiana Jones. But I don't know that he's even... I don't, I've never met him. I don't know if he's a good person. He doesn't seem to have such a great life other than the fact that he plays these great roles. I mean, he's Han Solo. Makes me, want to, makes me want to love him. But what does movies and television do for us? They bring us humanity as opposed to removing humanity. So it gives you a false sense of relationship with somebody. So you, you, you get to watch somebody's life even though it's fake. You get to be tense with them. You get to be happy with them. You know, it's like watching uh, Friends and hoping that the characters get married. At some point you have to go, wait a minute, these are not real. But you're experiencing human emotion. You're connecting with people on a level. So they're trying to manipulate you in that way. Movies and television and media are trying to sell you something. You just have to be aware of what they're selling so that you don't buy it by accident. And that's what happens in the city. Is there's so much noise, so many people, so many things happening that you don't realize that you've purchased things without even knowing, that you owe debt that you didn't even know you... You know, you hear those, you know, your, your body is paying things, you know... You, that you can't afford. So he prays for them. He says, are you going to sweep up everybody? What if there are 50 righteous people in that city? Now, I don't know about you. That's a lowball shot. I mean, you would think, I would think you'd say, well, aren't there at least like, aren't there like at least a thousand? He starts with 50. Why? Because he knows how terrible this city is. He knows how terrible it is. Okay, there's got to be at least 50 people. <laughs> there's got like, you know, 10 families. Is there 10 families that are at least righteous? How about that? What if there are 50? Would you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Now notice, he's, he's questioning, he's asking. It also gives us a lesson on prayer that you're allowed to ask. See, some people think that you have to be polite with God, that you, have to, that you can't worry, that you can't have doubt, that you can't wonder. But here we have Abraham really, in a sense, being kind of rude. I mean, he's talking, about the, he's talking to the Lord of the universe. And he's, ask, and he's asking him to change his plan. It's almost like we're going to go to Buffalo Wild Wings and they just want to go to McDonald's. They have no idea what we're talking about. They don't have the perspective. They don't know what they've, that, where they've been. They don't even know where they're going. They don't even remember their friends from two years ago. Let alone, But they want to be the judge of where we're going and how we're going to get there. It's, it cracks me up when they always say, Mom, that was a stop sign. That's my favorite. Yeah, I know, I know. You're allowed to turn right on red. Are you sure? Yes, I've read the book. But here he's saying, look, are you really going to sweep away? If there, what if there's 50? 
Would you really sweep it away? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. See, so Abraham now is pleading a court case. Notice what he's doing. He's saying, well, you, oh God, wouldn't kill righteous along with unrighteous. He's pulling in the truth of what he knows about God's character. Now this is important because he's also learning a lesson here. Because the answer to this prayer is no. There are not 50. So Abraham should go, I would imagine that every time every Abraham asked, a little part of his heart broke. Because you think you're lowballing here. I could imagine he comes in and says, what if there's 50? And God goes, sorry. I could imagine that his heart dropped a little bit. There's not even 50? Could you imagine we're praying for Chicago and we say to God, what if there's just 50 people in the entire city that love you? And he goes, there's not. I would imagine that there'd be a long pause. Because he says, would you really sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And the Lord goes, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't sweep away the righteous with the wicked. In fact, I hold my hand often, but not in this case. That's incredibly sad, don't you think? 50, there's not even 50. He says, I know that you wouldn't sweep away the righteous, and God agrees. In a sense, he, I imagine that God just nodded his head at him. Yeah, I wouldn't do that. Then the Lord said, if I can find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for, for their sake. Now this is important. I want to take a pause here for a minute. Because often when things happen in this world, disasters, wars, rumors of wars, we assume that God is judging every single place. You know, when that hurricane, not this past one, but when the hurricane came years ago that went up to Louisiana and it hit New Orleans, there were people on TV saying that city's being judged for all its sin. And I thought, that makes sense on a certain level. It is a terrible city. If you've ever been there, it's really not that much fun. Um, the food's good. There's chicken spicy. But it's really not that fun of a city. But it turned out that that year, right after the hurricane, there was an Evangelical Theological Society meeting that I went to. So I went and stayed at a hotel there. We were right near uh, all, all the stuff. And I get in the cab, and there's a guy, and I said, how did you do in the hurricane? And he said, oh, actually, I'm living in the stadium right now. He's still driving a cab. He's living in the stadium down there because his, his house and everything's been destroyed. And I said, wow, that's really terrible. And he goes, you know what makes me mad? He goes, not one casino got knocked down. None of the pornography got washed away. The entire street where they do all those, all those terrible things. This is what the guy in the car says to me. None of that even got flooded. And I went, oh, I think I've been judging a little bit wrong here. Unless God was judging all the poor black people, but not the pornography, and not the casinos, and not the... Then we probably don't have the perspective we think we do. And it really hit me hard because I was just on board with the idea that, yeah, God's judging New Orleans because it's terrible. They can't even speak French right. But then you get there and you go, what about all the sin? And the people there felt it. They knew it. They could even say it. They could even articulate the fact that what about all the sinners? I mean, it was like... And it's important because here he's saying, look, will God hold back for just 50 people? Yes, He will. So when we're quick to judge and say God's going to destroy this city, know that if there's just some he'll hold his hand. Which should give us hope, and it should make us drop to our knees, and it should make us pray, because if there's just a few, then God will set it. Which means that some of us probably need to move to the city. Some of us need to show up, because we can protect the city by just going there. In fact, right before all the Billy Graham crusades, before he even comes to town, he calls up all the churches, calls up all the places, and he says, I want you to bring a team, and I want to pray for every single street. I want you to stand on the corner and I want you to pray for that corner. And then we're going to take a grid and we're going to do... I remember when he came to New York and all the congregations and all the churches got together and everybody took a corner and we covered the entire 20 million people in prayer, whether they knew it or not. And we interceded on their behalf and interceding was we prayed and we prayed and we prayed and the prayer came out something like, Lord, if there's just 50, how about just 50? And he stays his hand. People believe that God is removing His blessing, but it's part of what He promised that would happen. It's important to know that He would not sweep away the righteous with the... And that's an important thing to remember when we're praying for a city because we need to know that there are righteous people there and we hope that there are righteous people there, but we need to be prepared for the fact that there will be a day where we pray for the city and God will say there are none. 
Then Abraham spoke up again. Ooh, listen, now he's getting bold. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, he even says it out loud. I know that I'm bold. Now, notice, does God get angry at Abraham for being bold? He doesn't. That's what's so cool about this. Is he even, and he's very polite about it, he says, I know that I'm being presumptuous here, Lord, but, and I know that I asked for 50, but I kind of was expecting, which we know he was probably expecting that there would be 50. Because he lowballed it. And God said, no, there's not. There's not 50. So he comes back and says, look, I know I'm being presumptuous here. I know I'm being bold. As to speak to the Lord, he goes, though I am nothing but dust and ashes. No, notice, he brings up something that comes from the beginning of the book of Genesis, that we come from the dust and we return to the dust. He's essentially saying, I know that I'm just a person here and you are God. And it's bold for a person to tell God what to do, but I'm going to anyway. What if the number of the righteous was five less than 50? What if, would you destroy it then? Would you destroy the whole city because of Five less, so 45. How about 45? Right? He's thinking there's got to be 45. I mean, we'll take one family out. How about, how about nine families? Once again, he spoke to him. What if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I would not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? Because he's starting to pick up on the fact that the Lord is nodding his head at him and saying, I wouldn't do it if there was 30. I wouldn't destroy the city if there were 30 righteous. Now what we find out at the end of this story is generally there's like three and a half people that survive. Right? One makes it about halfway and then turns to a pillar of salt. Generally there's about three and a half um, people. And he's asking for 45. He's saying maybe 45. How about 40? How about, how about 30? Right? So before the Lord can even answer... He's already bringing the number down and down and down. He's interceding. What it says about, to me about prayer is, one, you're allowed to be bold. One, you're allowed to ask for things that aren't exactly fair, like we talked about last week. You're allowed to go before the Lord, even in boldness. Now notice, this is before the, the curtain has been ripped. This is before we could boldly go into His throne room that we talk about in the New Testament because the curtain was ripped between, him and the, you know, between us and the Holy of Holies. And now we can boldly go before His throne. Well, here's Abraham at the beginning boldly going before his throne, it turns out that the way humans interact with God is sometimes in boldness, and God doesn't strike us down for that. I always remember as a kid people saying, whoa, that's a little bold. You don't want to get struck by lightning. And I I think now I would say, maybe you should start being bold. Like, ask for what you think is important, especially when you're in line with God's character. What you don't want to do is say, God, I really think everybody in this congregation deserves a Corvette. I mean, we all really need to drive fast, especially when it's raining. I think he would go, uh, okay. But here he's saying, aren't you a God of righteousness? Aren't you a God of justice? Right? We find this later. Moses does, you know, Moses does the same thing. He says, God, do you want your name, do you want your name to be spread out to the world? Or do you want it to look bad before all the nations? And God, God kind of laughs at him the same way. Like, yes, Moses, I want my name to be go to all the nations. That's the plan. He's going, but God, if you do this, if you destroy the people, and he goes, go on, okay, explain it to me. Let's draw this out. Let's see what you have to say, right? Because who's he trying to teach the lesson to? Abraham, to us. He's trying to teach us something. So he's letting us be bold, even though it's a little rude to be bold to the king. Which means that in prayer, it's okay to intercede even for a city you don't love, even for people you don't like, See, the hard thing about this is you have to be able to pray for people who turn out to be the most disgusting. The ones who you are the most angry at. How do you forgive the people who put us through the concentration camps? How do you forgive the people that tortured people in Japan? How do you forgive people? You see the people who have, as believers have had to forgive their captors, forgive the people who have persecuted them. It's almost impossible if not for the help of God. But then when you think about it, if this is really about hospitality and we're not forgiving people, even though we're asking for forgiveness for ourselves, then no wonder Yeshua says you can't be forgiven if you don't forgive others. Why? Because at the core of all of it is hospitality. You're either like Abraham who gets on his knees and, 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 and laughs when God speaks and is bold with God and gives God everything. He shows up and you're hospitable. Or it turns out that at the core, we're, none of us are hospitable. 
So what you find is even though we're praying for this disgusting city, you should at some point come to the realization that you're a part of that disgusting city. I think I've told this story before, but when I got in with some friends and I slowly became darker and darker into probably the darkest part of my life, there was a guy in my dad's congregation who I thought was the most disgusting person I'd ever met. In fact, I pretty much hated him. I didn't like to be near him. I didn't like to even say his name. He just grossed me out. He grossed me out so much that I didn't even want to sit anywhere near him in the congregation because I knew him, I knew what he was into, I knew what he didn't like. But as I started getting with my friends and getting deeper into their things and becoming more and more into what they were at, I started going to the same places they were at, and I'm, I'm in a, a strip club looking for the stripper that I have particular relationship with, and who's with her? The guy from my dad's congregation. And my thought was, he is so gross, he is so disgusting. And the Lord said to me, well, then what are you? And that was the last time I went back. Because I realized somehow I had separated in my mind the difference between his disgustingness and my disgustingness. His sin and my sin. Somehow I could compartmentalize my sin as something I was struggling with and his sin as something that needed to be judged. I stopped praying for him and I just got angrier and angrier and I just rejected him in my mind. Never thinking that he would be redeemed and not even realizing in the process that I wasn't any better. And the truth is, is as we find in this, this contrast that's happening, that God's saying the reason he's angry at Sodom and Gomorrah, according to the prophets, is because we had so much and we didn't give any away. We weren't hospitable. We didn't take care of the orphans. We didn't take care of the widows. We didn't take care of people. And I go, wow, that's, that pretty much covers everybody, including me. So what you find is, is as you start praying for the city, as you start praying for places like the city, the shadow of the city you realize you've been living in. And it's the story of Lot, that you started on the outside, and then you moved a little bit closer, and then you, then you sold your tent and bought a house, and now you're just as deep in as everybody else. In fact, you know all those guys, and you're just hoping they don't rape your kids. Think about that. Think about the fact that the process that Abraham's going through is the process that God's trying to teach us is to show us that the more we pray for others, the more we're going to recognize our own sin and the more that we're going to realize that we deserve the same thing that they deserve and we need to turn just like they turn and then all of a sudden they, we don't, there isn't an us and them. It's all of us are all in the same boat. We're all in the same place where we're all going to be judged and we all have to come before the righteousness of God and we all have to show ourselves covered in the blood. So we all have fallen short of the glory of God and we all need his righteousness and we all need his redemption because we all owe a spiritual debt which means that the more you intercede for others the more you're going to start interceding for yourself because as you pray for others you're going to start seeing your own. And that's the, that's the gift of prayer is as you pray for other people things start coming out. I mean, when you first start praying you don't know what to pray for so you pray for little things like Lord, thank you for this food which is what we teach our kids or thank you for this day and then you start going, Lord, please bless this person and bless my family and protect them and protect... Then all of a sudden you're going, Lord, please, maybe if there was one righteous person in my house, you wouldn't, you wouldn't scrape us up with everybody else. And God goes, who's supposed to lead the family into righteousness? As for me and my house, who are we going to serve? All of a sudden you start realizing that I'm not just living up on a hill looking down at Sodom. I'm right in the middle of Sodom. I live there like everybody else. And we all have an opportunity to, put, to start praying city prayers. City-wide, big prayers that cover entire cities. And what we find is, is that in the journey, we start wondering who's righteous, who's righteous, who's righteous. Not even one. Which is why we need the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Sometimes we separate it, don't you think? I mean, sometimes we think, oh God, please come and save them. As if we didn't need to be saved. Somehow we don't, and he says, look, don't judge lest you be judged. Why is he saying that? Because it works backwards too. If you forget that you're part of the group, that you're a sinner saved by grace, all of a sudden you're going to start believing that everybody else has a problem and you just need to pray for them. As if you're sitting on the hill praying for all the poor people who are going to be destroyed. When you don't realize that you're actually just part of the group. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry and let me speak. What if there are 30 I will not do it if there are 30. Abraham said, now that I have been bold to speak to the Lord, what if there are only 20? He said, for the sake of 20, I would not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry. Let me speak once more. What if there are only 10? 
Think about it. His heart's breaking. His heart's breaking for the city. His heart's breaking for himself. His heart's breaking for his family. He's saying, there's got to be somebody. He says, for the sake of ten, I won't destroy it. Essentially, one family. There's one family. When the Lord finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. Where was the Lord headed? He was headed to hear the case. And Abraham was headed back to the safety of Hebron. To the safety of his, the fatted, all the leftovers that he had just given all these guys. Where he could fill his belly. And now he had a choice. Is he going to pray as he looks down at Sodom for the safety of Sodom, for what's going to happen? He's interceded. Or is he going to go back and just eat his food? Is he going to fill his belly and go to sleep and forget everything that ever happened? But he can't now because he's now interceded. He's now pleaded. He's now begged the Lord to not destroy. And that's what we're called to. We're called to city prayer. To huge, wide, big prayers that try to encompass entire cities. To try to fight back the shadows. And through one man's light, the darkness flees. Through one Messiah, everything is solved. Through one man's death, one righteous man takes away the sin of everybody else. Because there was one that God held his hand. He's not judging you if you put your trust in Yeshua because of one righteous. Not even just ten. One righteous man. And because of that righteous man, he's holding back his wrath from you. His judgment from you. So what does that mean about how we pray? How do we pray for people? How do we pray for whole cities? It's, Lord, please show them that you are the way, the truth, and the life. Set the captives free because they don't know the difference between their right hand and their left. And then we follow Yeshua to his cross where he says, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. We should be following Yeshua, the one righteous man who's ever lived, into forgiving the world and praying that God would forgive them. Because if we don't pray for God to forgive them, we forget that we're part of them. We need to learn how to do city prayer. Big prayer. Bold prayer. Repetitive prayer. Prayer that kind of gets in God's face even though it's a little bit rude. Because He wants us to go through the process of thinking through what it means to pray for a city. Amen? So I'm going to have you stand up. And I know we all live in different cities. So as the worship team comes up and they start praying, or we start, they start playing, I want you to just say the name of the city out loud that you live in. And as we sing the last couple songs, I want you to start praying for your city. The one that you live in. The one that you bought your house in. The one that needs the one righteous man. Right? So I live in Gray's Lake. And I pray that God, through the one righteous man, Messiah, will save Gray's Lake. Who's next? Lake Zurich, what's up? Skokie, Antioch. Chicago. Niles. I couldn't hear, say it louder. Northbrook, that's a good one. Waukegan. Zion. Morton Grove. What you'll find as people, as you start praying for your city, is that we make a pretty big circle around. The, this area, the Chicagoland area. If you looked at a map of all the people from a dot, what you'll find is, is there's about 120 people who live in a giant circle around this whole area. And what you remember from Scripture is that when God sent Gideon, there were only 120 for a for hundred, couple hundred thousand people. And he said, if you let your light shine, God will move and when they hear the shofar blast, they will respond. That's what we we're trying to do. So as we sing these songs, I want you to think about your city. I want you to think about the shadow of the city that we're in, Chicago. And I want you to pray for our cities. And I want you to give bold prayers. Because God is trying to teach us how to pray. And the first intercession in Scripture is how to pray big.